Section 5 of Chapter 22 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 22, Section 5. Goodman had been allowed a liberty which was afterwards, with some reason, made matter of charge against the government. For his testimony was most important, his character was notoriously bad. The attempts which had been made to seduce Porter proved that, if money could save Fenwick's life, money would not be spared. And Goodman had not, like Porter, been instrumental in sending Jacobites to the gallows, and therefore was not, like Porter, bound to the cause of William by an indissoluble tie. The families of the imprisoned conspirators employed the agency of a cunning and daring adventurer named O'Brien. This man knew Goodman well. Indeed, they had belonged to the same gang of highwaymen. They met at the Dog in Drury Lane, a tavern which was frequented by lawless and desperate men. O'Brien was accompanied by another Jacobite of determined character. A simple choice was offered to Goodman to abscond and to be rewarded with an annuity of five hundred a year, or to have his throat cut on the spot. He consented, half from cupidity, half from fear. O'Brien was not a man to be tricked as Clancy had been. He never parted company with Goodman from the moment when the bargain was struck till they were at Saint-Germain. On the afternoon of the day on which Fenwick was examined by the king at Kensington, it began to be noised abroad that Goodman was missing. He had been many hours absent from his house. He had not been seen at his usual haunts. At first a suspicion arose that he had been murdered by the Jacobites, and this suspicion was strengthened by a singular circumstance. Just after his disappearance, a human head was found severed from the body to which it belonged, and so frightfully mangled that no feature could be recognized. The multitude possessed by the notion that there was no crime which an Irish papist might not be found to commit, was inclined to believe that the fate of Godfrey had befallen another victim. On inquiry, however, it seemed certain that Goodman had designedly withdrawn himself. A proclamation appeared promising a reward of a thousand pounds to any person who should stop the runaway, but it was too late. This event exasperated the Whigs beyond measure. No jury could now find Fenwick guilty of high treason. Was he then to escape? Was a long series of offenses against the state to go unpunished, merely because to those offenses had now been added the offense of bribing a witness to suppress his evidence and to desert his bail? Was there no extraordinary method by which justice might strike a criminal who, solely because he was worse than other criminals, was beyond the reach of the ordinary law? Such a method there was, a method authorized by numerous precedents, a method used both by Papists and by Protestants during the troubles of the sixteenth century, a method used both by Roundheads and by Cavaliers during the troubles of the seventeenth century, a method which scarcely any leader of the Tory party could condemn without condemning himself, a method of which Fenwick could not decently complain since he had a few years before, been eager to employ it against the unfortunate Monmouth. 
to that method the party which was now supreme in the state determined to have a recourse soon after the commons had met on the morning of the sixth of november russell rose in his place and requested to be heard the task which he had undertaken required courage not of the most respectable kind but to him no kind of courage was wanting sir john fenwick he said had sent to the king a paper in which grave accusations were brought against some of his majesty's servants and his majesty had at the request of his accused servants graciously given orders that this paper should be laid before the house the confession was produced and read the admiral then with spirit and dignity worthy of a better man demanded justice for himself and shrewsbury if we are innocent clear us if we are guilty punish us as we deserve i put myself on you as on my country and am ready to stand or fall by your verdict it was immediately ordered that fenwick should be brought to the bar with all speed cutts who sate in the house as member for cambridgeshire was directed to provide a sufficient escort and was especially enjoined to take care that the prisoner should have no opportunity of making or receiving any communication oral or written on the road from newgate to westminster the house then adjourned till the afternoon at five o'clock then a late hour the mace was again put on the table candles were lighted and the house and lobby were carefully cleared of strangers fenwick was in attendance under a strong guard he was called in and exhorted from the chair to make a full and ingenuous confession he hesitated and evaded i cannot say anything without the king's permission his majesty may be displeased if what ought to be known only to him should be divulged to others he was told that his apprehensions were groundless the king well knew that it was the right and the duty of his faithful commons to inquire into whatever concerned the safety of his person and of his government i may be tried in a few days said the prisoner i ought not to be asked to say anything which may rise up in judgment against me you have nothing to fear replied the speaker if you only make a full and free discovery no man ever had reason to repent of having dealt candidly with the commons of england then fenwick begged for delay he was not a ready orator his memory was bad he must have time to prepare himself he was told as he had been told a few days before in the royal closet that prepared or unprepared he could not but remember the principal plots in which he had been engaged and the names of his chief accomplices if he would honestly relate that it was quite impossible that he could have forgotten the house would make all fair allowances and would grant him time to recollect subordinate details thrice he was removed from the bar and thrice he was brought back he was solemnly informed that the opportunity then given him in earning the favor of the commons would probably be the last he persisted in his refusal and was sent back to newgate it was then moved that his confession was false and scandalous coningsby proposed to add that it was a contrivance to create jealousies between the king and good subject for the purpose of screening real traitors a few implacable and unmanageable whigs whose hatred of godolphin had not been mitigated by his resignation 
hinted their doubts whether the whole paper ought to be condemned. But after a debate in which Montague particularly distinguished himself, the motion was carried. One or two voices cried, No! But nobody ventured to demand a division. Thus far all had gone smoothly, but in a few minutes the storm broke forth. The terrible words, Bill of Attainder, were pronounced, and all the fiercest passions of both the great factions were instantly roused. The Tories had been taken by surprise, and many of them had left the house. Those who remained were loud in declaring that they never would consent to such a violation of the first principles of justice. The spirit of the Whigs was not less ardent, and their ranks were unbroken. The motion for leave to bring in a bill attaining Sir John Fenwick was carried very late at night by 179 votes to 61, but it was plain that the struggle would be long and hard. In truth, party spirit had seldom been more strongly excited. On both sides there was doubtless much honest zeal, and on both sides an observant eye might have detected fear, hatred, and cupidity disguised under specious pretenses of justice and public good. The baleful heat of fraction rapidly warmed into life-poisonous creeping things which had long been lying torpid, discarded spies and convicted false witnesses. The leavings of the scourge, the braining iron and the shears. Even Fuller hoped that he might again find dupes to listen to him. The world had forgotten him since his pillaring. He now had the effrontery to write to the speaker, begging to be heard at the bar and promising much important information about Fenwick and others. On the 9th of November, the speaker informed the House that he had received this communication, but the House very properly refused even to suffer the letter of so notorious a villain to be read. On the same day, the bill of attainder, having been prepared by the Attorney and Solicitor General, was brought in and read a first time. The house was full and the debate sharp. John Manley, member for Bossany, one of those staunch Tories who, in the preceding session, had long refused to sign the association, accused the majority, in no measured terms, of fawning on the court and betraying the liberties of the people. His words were taken down, and, though he tried to explain them away, he was sent to the tower. Seymour spoke strongly against the bill, and quoted the speech which Caesar made in the Roman Senate against the motion that the accomplices of Catiline should be put to death in an irregular manner. A Whig orator keenly remarked that the worthy baron had forgotten that Caesar was grievously suspected of having been himself concerned in Catiline's plot. In this stage, a hundred and ninety-six members voted for the bill, a hundred and four against. A copy was sent to Fenwick, in order that he might be prepared to defend himself. He begged to be heard by counsel. His request was granted, and the thirteenth was fixed for the hearing. Never within the memory of the oldest member had there been such a stir around the house as on the morning of the thirteenth. The approaches were with some difficulty cleared, and no stranger except peers were suffered to come within the doors. Of peers, the throng was so great that their presence had perceptible influence on the debate. Even Seymour, who, having formerly been Speaker, ought to have been peculiarly mindful of the dignity of the Commons, 
so strangely forgot himself as once to say, My lords. Fenwick, having been formerly given up by the sheriffs of London to the sergeant-at-arms, was put to the bar, attended by two barristers who were generally employed by Jacobite culprits, Sir Thomas Powis and Sir Bartholomew Shower. Counsel appointed by the House appeared in support of the bill. The examination of the witness and the arguments of the advocates occupied three days. Porter was called in and interrogated. It was established, not indeed by legal proof, but by such moral proof as determines the conduct of men in the affairs of common life, that Goodman's absence was to be attributed to a scheme planned and executed by Fenwick's friends with Fenwick's privity. Secondary evidence of what Goodman, if he had been present, would have been able to prove was after a warm debate admitted. His confession, made on oath and subscribed by his hand, was put in. Some of the grand jurymen who had found the bill against Sir John gave an account of what Goodman had sworn before them, and their testimony was confirmed by some of the petty jurymen who had convicted another conspirator. No evidence was produced in behalf of the prisoner. After counsel for him and against him had been heard, he was sent back to his cell. Then the real struggle began. It was long and violent. The house repeatedly sate from daybreak till near midnight. Once the speaker was in the chair fifteen hours without intermission. Strangers were freely admitted, for it was felt that, since the House chose to take on itself the functions of the Court of Justice, it ought, like a Court of Justice, to sit with open doors. The substance of the debates had consequently been preserved in a report, meager indeed, when compared with the reports of our time, but for that age unusually full. Every man of note in the House took part in the discussion. The bill was opposed by Finch with that fluent and sonorous rhetoric which had gained him the name of Silvertongue, and by Howe with all the sharpness both of his wit and of his temper, by Seymour with his characteristic energy, and by Harley with his characteristic solemnity. On the other side, Montague displayed the powers of the consummate debater and was zealously supported by Littleton. Conspicuous in the front ranks of the hostile parties were two distinguished lawyers, Simon Harcourt and William Cowper. Both were gentlemen of honorable descent, both were distinguished by their fine persons and graceful manners, both were renowned for eloquence, and both loved learning and learned men. It may be added that both had early in life been noted for prodigality and love of pleasure. Dissipation had made them poor, Poverty had made them industrious, and though they were still, as age is reckoned in the inns of court, very young men, Harcourt only thirty-six, Cowper only thirty-two, they already had the first practice at the bar. They were destined to rise still higher, to be the bearers of the great seal of the realm, and the founders of the patrician houses. In politics, they were diametrically opposed to each other. Harcourt, had seen the revolution with disgust, had not chosen to sit in the convention, had with difficulty reconciled his conscience to the oaths, and had tardily and unwillingly signed the association. Cowper had been in arms for the Prince of Orange and a free parliament, and had, in the short and tumultuary campaign which preceded the flight of James, 
distinguished himself by intelligence and courage. Since Summer had been removed to the Woolsack, the law offices of the Crown had not made a very distinguished figure in the lower house, or indeed anywhere else, and their deficiencies had been more than once supplied by Cowper. His skill had, at the trial of Parkins, recovered the verdict which the mismanagement of the Solicitor General had, for a moment, put in jeopardy. He had been chosen member for Hertford at the general election of 1695, and had scarcely taken his seat when he attained a high place among parliamentary speakers. Chesterfield, many years later, in one of his letters to his son, described Cowper as an orator who never spoke without applause, but who reasoned feebly, and who owed the influence which he long exercised over great assemblies to the singular charm of his style his voice, and his action. Chesterfield was, beyond all doubt, intellectually qualified to form a correct judgment on such a subject. But it must be remembered that the object of his letters was to exalt good taste and politeness in opposition to much higher qualities. He therefore constantly and systematically attributed the success of the most eminent persons of his age to their superiority, not in solid abilities or acquirements, but in superficial graces of diction and manner. He represented even Marlborough as a man of very ordinary capacity who, solely because he was extremely well-bred and well-spoken, had risen from poverty and obscurity to the height of power and glory. It may confidently be pronounced that both to Marlborough and to Cowper, Chesterfield was unjust. The general who saved the empire and conquered the low countries was assuredly something more than a fine gentleman, and the judge who presided during the nine years in the court of chancery, with the approbation of all parties, must have been something more than a fine disclaimer. Whoever attentively and impartially studies the report of the debates will be of opinion that, on many points which were discussed at great length and with great animation, the Whigs had a decided superiority in argument, but that on the main question the Tories were in the right. It was true that the crime of high treason was brought home to Fenwick by proofs which could leave no doubt on the mind of any man of common sense, and would have been brought home to him according to the strict rules of law. If he had not, by committing another crime, eluded the justice of the ordinary tribunals, it was true that he had, in the very act of professing repentance and imploring mercy, added a new offense to his former offenses that, while pretending to make a perfectly ingenuous confession, he had, with cunning malice, concealed everything which it was for the interest of the government that he should divulge, and proclaim everything which it was for the interest of the government to bury in silence. It was a great evil that he should be beyond the reach of punishment, it was plain that he could be reached only by a bill of pains and penalties, and it could not be denied either that many such bills had passed, or that no such bill had ever passed in a clearer case of guilt or after a fairer hearing. All these propositions the Whigs seemed to have fully established. They had also a decided advantage in the dispute about the rule which requires two witnesses in cases of high treason. The truth is that the rule is absurd. It is impossible to understand why the evidence which would be sufficient to prove that a man has fired at one of his fellow subjects, 
should not be sufficient to prove that he has fired at his sovereign. It can by no means be laid down as a general maxim that the assertion of two witnesses is more convincing to the mind than the assertion of one witness. The story told by one witness may be itself probable. The story told by two witnesses may be extravagant. The story told by one witness may be uncontradicted. The story told by two witnesses may be contradicted by four witnesses. The story told by one witness may be corroborated by a crowd of circumstances. The story told by two witnesses may have no such corroboration. The one witness may be Tillotson or Ken. The two witnesses may be Oates and Bedloe. End of section 5 Recording by Hugh Gillis